Happy Sunday Spark. I hope that all of you are having beautiful weekends so far. I know that with the election just a couple days around the corner, many of us are feeling such a wide range of emotions right now. Fear, anxiety, uncertainty, optimism, hope. And so I think that the timing worked out so beautifully that at a moment in time where many of us are trying to figure out how we move forward, that we're focusing our pre-election sermon on this particular passage of the Gospel of Luke, the parable of the sower. In a political climate where many of us are increasingly entrenched in our own worldviews, whether that's because of the dark side of algorithms or so many of the other forces that surround us that put an increased onus on us to go and proactively seek new perspectives, the stories that we tell matter. The stories that we seek matter. And the stories that we live matter. God knew this because stories are the tool that God has used from the very beginning of his biblical narrative to help his people make sense of where they were and how they move forward and to continue to help us now make sense of where we are and how we move forward. Stories are one of God's most powerful ways of touching us intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually. And we could spend an entire series at Spark just talking about uh, the powerful, subversive, radical role that stories play in God's story. But we only have uh, a little bit of time in today's sermon, so what I want to do first is to take a step back before we even read the passage and explore what parables are and why they matter. Because the parable of the sower is a parable about parables. And so before we get super meta, let's just uh, set the scene and set some context for what we're about to dig into. And so why are parables so effective at conveying what other forms of communication may not be so effective at conveying? Here's a quote that I think sums up that answer really well. Direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. But indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior. And that's from Klein Snodgrass uh, from his book, Stories with Intent. So this quote describes to me exactly why Pixar movies are effective at being as subversive as they are. They work because they're so indirect. There is such profound social commentary in Pixar movies. There's environmentalism and consumerism in WALL-E. There are border politics in Coco. Aging in Up. And challenging what a nuclear family should look like in The Incredibles. (laughs) 
all of these messages land so powerfully with their audiences because they're indirect and they invite us into a world that's different enough from our own for us to be curious and lower our defenses, but similar enough to our own world that the challenge these stories pose to us digs so deep into our hearts and souls if we let them. Wally's opening credits don't tell us, hey humans, stop destroying our world or this is what your future will look like. It instead gently lands that message through an inviting and welcoming robot love story. Some have even called Wally an ecological parable, even though Andrew Stanton, the director of Wally, came out and said, I don't have a political bent or ecological message to push. I don't mind that it supports that kind of view, but that was not where I was coming from when I did that stuff. Sure, Andrew, we believe you. And there is the difference between any kind of indirect storytelling that happens to land a compelling social message and the parables of Jesus. Jesus did have a message to push. He was thoroughly strategic and intentional from beginning to end in every single parable that he told, and he was trying to make a point. Jesus used parables to stimulate, to persuade, and to campaign for a new kind of life and rule. And that becomes especially clear to us in the parable of the sower, which we'll dig into today. Now, I think it's important to note that parables as a form of storytelling aren't unique to Jesus. Uh, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets used parables as a tool to mirror Israel's condition and its relationship to God over time. So many of you may remember one of the most famous parables in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel, where the prophet Nathan tells King David a parable to help reveal to David how badly David had messed up by getting another man's wife pregnant, then killing that man in battle. David is able to connect with that story and see his own story and reality reflected through the parable that Nathan is telling in a way that he probably never would have through direct communication. Jesus had that same effect. He didn't create parables, but he mastered them to comment on what he was doing here and now to bring the kingdom of God on earth and completely dismantle our value system and orientation of the world. Remember, for a little bit of context, many of those hearing Jesus's parables were expecting something really big to happen. A new king to overthrow Herod, a Jewish movement that would topple their oppressive rule. And that wasn't happening in the way that anyone expected that it would. So Jesus uses these parables to open people's eyes and ears towards how God's kingdom was actually working in the world right now. Jesus's message was so radical and so explosive that he couldn't be direct, given that his vision was so unlike what anyone in Israel was expecting. And so with that context set, let's dive into our passage for today, the parable of the sower, according to Luke. Now, this parable is given unique importance by Matthew, Mark, and Luke because it tends to show up at the beginning of sections uh, in which Jesus is teaching on parables and uh, the importance of the parables in understanding the kingdom of God. So I'm going to cover two central things that I think that uh, Jesus is trying to accomplish in this parable. The first is I think he's trying to explain to us uh, what we do when we hear the word of God and challenging us to do better. And the second was to explain what he was doing uh, and how he saw himself as central to what God was doing in Israel. So with that, let's read the parable. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. 
It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So let's pause there for a moment. Uh, there's a lot going on here. Let's dig into the imagery and language that Jesus is choosing to use in this parable. So throughout our biblical narrative, uh, we see images of sowing, of seeds, of successful and unsuccessful harvest pop up again and again and again, because the audience of these stories at the time lived in an agriculture-based society. And so it was a connection that they would be able to immediately make to the world that was being created in these parables. These sowing metaphors appear again and again and again uh, in the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, but also outside of the Bible in other Greco-Roman texts of the time. The image of a farmer sowing his seed was an image that prophets used to promise that Israel's God would come back to one day re-sow Israel. So like in his other parables, and like in all of Jesus' parables, uh, he is world-building in a way. Uh, that immediately brings out a real-life feature of the human experience that his audience can connect with. He's meeting people where they're at and then drawing them deeper. He's using something obvious to reveal something more obscure. There is so much symbolism in this parable. Where do we even start? How do we make sense of what Jesus is doing? So I think that the parable of the sower may not really be about the sower who represents God, I know, come on, biblical titlers, why call it the parable of the sower if it's not about the sower? Just make it easier for us. And it's not really about the seed either, uh, which represents the word of God. The parable is about the soil, and the soil represents us and how we hear. I think Jesus is using this parable to tell us what it means to hear God authentically. What we're seeing here is four pictures of successful and unsuccessful hearing being contrasted against each other. The seed that falls on the path that's trampled on, the seed that falls on rocky ground, the seed that falls on the thorns, and the seed that falls on good soil represent four ways in which we decide to hear the word of God. Jesus isn't telling us in this passage that hearing is important. Jesus is telling us what kind of hearing is most important. So in one of the rare occurrences of the Gospels, the parable of the sower is one of uh, very few parables on record in which Jesus actually offers an explanation for what the parable means. So instead of us sitting and deconstructing it, let's just have Jesus deconstruct it for us. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, 
and they do not mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they think they have, will be taken from them. So there are two things that I want to highlight that are happening in this passage. The first is this beautiful, empowering literary pattern uh, that Luke is using in Jesus's explanation of the parable, which drives home that it's not really about who hears the word of God as much as it is about how they hear it. Throughout the passage, the word hear is being used every time with an active response. So let's take a look at this. We see here plus believe, here plus choked, here plus produce fruit, here plus retain and persevere. Jesus is telling us that to be a part of his kingdom work, a failure to respond isn't an option. If we hear God's word, but don't couple that with an actual commitment, then our growth and the kingdom growth actually sees very little life, just like the seed in the parable. Jesus is telling us that God's seed is being sown in proclaiming the kingdom. He's fulfilling the promise to restore Israel. And being involved in that kingdom work means having the ears to hear and the will to respond. How we respond to the parable's challenge determines whether we hear more. Pastor Kevin posed uh, the question, could parables be literary Rorschach tests, exposing who we truly are and having to face who we really are? I think so. I think that our response to the parables, depending on which of those four categories of authentic or inauthentic hearing it falls into, may actually be a mirror and reflection of what we're ready for as individuals. That theme of authentic hearing is rich and profuse throughout the Gospels. This isn't the first time that it appears. It's not the last time that it appears in our biblical story. Later in Luke, uh, in chapter 19, verse 42, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem's inability to see and hear. And he says, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. In John chapter 8, verse 43, when Jesus is at the temple courts being questioned by the Pharisees, he says this, why is my language not clear to you? Because you were unable to hear what I say. I'm sure many of us have asked ourselves, just like the disciples themselves ask uh, Jesus in uh, the parable of the sower in uh, Matthew, why do you speak to the people in parables? If Jesus wanted so deeply to communicate how the kingdom of God was arriving on earth, and he wanted so badly to have us understand that message, why do it in such a coded and mysterious way? There is this idea out there uh, that Jesus spoke in parables to make it really difficult for people to access his message, sort of forming this club of insiders versus outsiders, some who did have access to his message and others who didn't. That is counter to everything that we know about Jesus. Jesus didn't tell parables to block understanding. He told parables to enable understanding. Jesus fundamentally stood for access, and that's a message that Pastor Omer covered earlier in our Luke series. 
So what's going on here? Um, how do we make sense of this tension? I think we might actually be able to look earlier in our biblical text to understand what might be going on here. But first, let's just recap these couple lines. In Luke chapter 8, verse 10, Jesus says once again, I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. So this is actually a direct reference to Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, and to recap, the book of Isaiah was compiled hundreds of years prior, where Isaiah announced how God's kingdom uh, would purify Israel um, and prepare its people for the messianic king and a new Jerusalem. And God says this, go and tell this people, be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving, make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull and close their eyes, Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So this passage in Isaiah is quoted once by each of the gospel writers to describe uh, the people of Israel's hardness of heart. It's quoted again in the book of Acts to describe those who reject uh, the Apostle Paul's message. When taken out of context, Isaiah's message feels really harsh and a little bit disturbing, right? Why would a God who wants so desperately for us to know him, for us to hear him, uh, want our hearts to be calloused, our ears to be dulled, our eyes to be closed? God uses this passage to provoke a response. His people have eyes and ears, but they're not seeing and they're not listening. So through indirect communication, uh, in this case, God's own irony, He's commenting on the condition that Israel brought upon itself by refusing to hear and refusing to respond. Direct communication didn't work with God's people in Isaiah's time, and direct communication continued to not work with God's people during Jesus's time. So when Jesus references Isaiah, that harshness that we feel in God's words is actually a challenge to us, just like the parables are. The hope is that these messages don't hide or discriminate between who has access to God and doesn't, but instead help challenge Israel to begin authentically hearing God again. Like our good friend Klein Snodgrass says in Stories with Intent, the parables hide in order to reveal. The idea of Jesus only making his message accessible to this exclusive club uh, breaks down even more when we pay attention to the fact that uh, Jesus wasn't just teaching to his disciples. He was teaching in front of public crowds. The boundaries are porous between his followers and everybody who surround them. This is important. It's a super important distinction to make. The outsiders that we talk about here uh, are the religious leadership of the time. They're Jesus' own family who wasn't ready to hear what he had to say. That line is one that any of us can choose to cross. Jesus' teaching isn't supposed to be impossibly mysterious or hard to crack. It's accessible to everyone as long as we choose to access it. When Jesus says, whoever has will be given more, whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. What he's really saying is, understanding is available to anyone who chooses to hear. It's whether or not someone is ready to hear that dictates whether or not they're an insider or an outsider. That to me is so beautiful. So to loop things back, uh, at the beginning of the lesson, I mentioned that other than challenging us uh, to commit to more authentic hearing, that Jesus's message in the parable of the sower may also be commentary on his own ministry 
And are we telling of sorts of the story of Israel? Just like the division of types of hearing that we hear in uh, the parable of the sower, over the course of our biblical narrative, people have been really divided in response to God visiting them through a prophet. Some people accept it, and some people vehemently reject it. And that was true for Jesus as well. Jesus was confronting the establishment of his time. People who were kept in power by Rome because they were rich, because they were successful, because they were influential. He challenged their entire value system and what motivated them, their privilege, their status, their wealth, their lifestyle, their beliefs, their tribalism, their self-righteousness, their rejection of what God was supposed to be and mean and look like in Israel. Jesus was announcing a kingdom that was a complete inversion in every way imaginable of their status quo. That wasn't something the religious establishment of the time was ready to accept. That's not something many of us today are ready to accept. Jesus' way of being and living Israel would involve such a complete 360-degree reorientation of how people lived that it was considered blasphemous. So stories were the only way that Jesus could talk about what he was doing. Parables became Jesus' way of campaigning for his alternative rule, a way for him to reach the outsiders to the establishment who were hungry for revolution, to know what it looks like when God is actually in charge, but at the same time, to evade tipping off those who would never see it in that way. So coming back to our passage today, the parable of the sower may also be functioning as an interpretation of Jesus's own ministry and what that ministry means in the grand narrative of Israel. N.T. Wright describes a beautiful metaphor in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, to make this point. Within Second Temple Judaism, the idea of a seed is capable of functioning as shorthand for the remnant who will return when the exile is finally over. The seed is a metaphor for the true Israel, who will be vindicated when her God finally acts, sown again in her own land. For someone announcing the kingdom to tell a story about the seed being sown, then would be to say, the remnant is now returning. The exile is over. Your God is at last showing the good seed, creating his true Israel. The parable tells the story of Israel, particularly the return from exile, with a paradoxical conclusion. And it tells the story of Jesus's ministry as the fulfillment of the larger story with a paradoxical outcome. By inviting people to come and share the secret, to make this strange story their own, and to join Jesus in his new way of being Israel, the hearers are summoned to understand that their own present story, the story of Israel's dream and national liberation is being subverted and changed into the dangerous and revolutionary story that Jesus is telling. Dangerous, revolutionary, subversive, that's what parables are. But how often have they been tamed so that they feel less like these power-packed agents of change and more like gentle, moralistic tales? Jesus' parables have been described by so many as both works of art and as weapons of war. And yet, over time, we've seen these parables be misinterpreted, misused, and rewritten over history to serve so many ideological agendas that weren't Jesus' own. Amy Jill Levine, who wrote the book uh, Short Stories by Jesus, says that throughout time we've domesticated the parables. We've taken their subversive, life-altering critique and we've reduced them to a series of rules or to-do lists or moralistic feel-good tales. 
spark. My challenge to us today is how do we undomesticate the parable and allow it to become again the tool that it was always intended to be, an instrument of change, a beautiful miracle that works through each and every one of us, sometimes in the most subtlest of ways. How might we not only hear the word of God authentically, how might we also respond authentically? Jesus tells us that a failure to respond isn't an option for the upside-down, topsy-turvy kingdom work that he commissions us to. How might we respond as individuals, as community? The parable is just a start. All it does is it transfers the ownership to us. To quote N.T. Wright one last time today, he says, For us today, the parable says a lot about how the message of Jesus worked among his hearers and about what that message was. But it also challenges our own preaching of the kingdom. Is what we're saying so subversive, so unexpected, that we would be well advised to quote it in a dream language or in code? If you were to draw a cartoon instead of preaching a sermon, what would it look like? Who would you expect to be offended if they cracked the code? That line, who would you expect to be offended if they cracked the code. Could it be us? Spark, it's that time of our service where we share in communion and reflect on Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection through a tradition that was passed down to us from the very beginning. Here, there are no insiders or outsiders. Access is everyone who chooses it. All are welcome at this table. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you, and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me.